we thank you and we praise you that you never fail and you won't start now. Lord, help us to trust you even when the way is unclear. Help us to follow you even when we can't see what the next step is. Lord, remind us that you are good and you're faithful and we can trust in you in all things. And so, Lord, now I pray that as we uh, turn our attention to your word and as we uh, consider this story, a story of hope, a story of redemption, Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to find ourselves in that story and teach us about your grace. Teach us about redemption today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. attorney had just finished his lecture to a bunch of uh, foreign national Italian lawyers in, uh, at a law school in Italy. And one of the Italian lawyers uh, came up to him and asked him this question, is it true that a person can fall down on a sidewalk in your country and then sue the landowners for lots of money? Um, told that it was true, the, the, the lawyer turned to his partner and they started speaking in Italian pretty, pretty rapidly. And when they stopped, the American attorney asked them uh, if they wanted to go to America to practice law. No, no, one replied. We want to go to America and fall down on sidewalks. You know, there are hard things that happen in our country. Some of them are not any fault of our own and, and uh, you know, damage can be done. Um, other things, um, sometimes we bring them upon ourselves. Um, like, I don't know if you've been following this story uh, that ESPN had of a, from a Yankees game a, about a week ago. Um, there was a, a Yankees fan fell asleep during a baseball game. And, you know, it doesn't matter what you're doing in a baseball stadium or a football stadium. You want to be cautious because cameras are everywhere and they will find you, right? Um, so... They show this man sleeping, and, and I watched the highlights, if you will, of a man sleeping in a baseball game. It really wasn't that exciting a game, so, you know. Um, and the, the announcers, you know, they didn't really disparage the guy. Um, they were talking about the guy sitting next to him, that sort of thing, and that, that he was kind of oblivious to what was going on at the baseball game. Well, this man is suing ESPN for $10 million. $10 million. Um, and, and this is what be, for remarks that their sportscasters made while he slept during a Yankees game. He says that he suffered substantial inner injury to his character and reputation and mental anguish, loss of future income, and loss of earning capacity. And I've been trying to figure this out, how those things are actually true, and the fact 
that there are millions of people now that know about this since he's brought the lawsuit that didn't know anything about it before. I had no idea. So, you know, there are a lot of trouble. There are troubles in our country. We face troubles. And sometimes I kind of feel like, you know what, like this guy, I think, he just needs to kind of suck it up. You know, look, let's, let's, have, some ba- let's have some skin here. You know, you, f- you fell asleep. You know, no, no really big deal, actually. Uh, but, but as I've thought about troubles in our country this week, and, and as I've thought about people that I know, people that I'm very close to, and the troubles that they're experiencing, there are enormous troubles in our country. There are. And, and as, I think about, as I think about Sunday mornings, and I think about what we talk about on a Sunday, on any given Sunday morning, it seems like most of the messages that, that we have talk about obstacles and trouble we have and, and how do we face them and those sorts of things. And, and, and I've been wondering, is, is that all there is? You know, what, wouldn't it be fun to come here on a Sunday morning and know that you were going to leave laughing your face off? That, that you were going to come in this room and, and we were going to just see amazing things um, in God's Word and, and it was just going to all be happy stuff. And, and we were going to walk out the doors and just go, wow, that was just, I just feel so good. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great? Now, I, I hope that that does occur sometimes. Um, because as I look at the biblical record... And, you know, and, and granted, we don't have everything that happened in the lives of people in the Old Testament or the New Testament. But how often is it facing trouble? Is it faith in tough times? Is it standing in deep water? It, we just do, don't we? It, it's, it's, it's the way life is. We live in a broken world, infected by sin. And, and Jesus himself says in John chapter 15, verse 33, in this world you will have trouble. It's going to come. There's going to be problems. Now, there's a lot of things that, that in my own life, as I think about them, that are good and that provide joy and, and excitement and satisfaction and contentment and all of those things. But it seems like the difficulties and the obstacles get all the press, doesn't it? And, and why is that? Because those are the times when, when we, we, as humans, we struggle the most. That's when we need God the most. And, and that early service, Ty said, you know, maybe you're here this morning and you just feel like the weight of the world is on you. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and life couldn't be any better. Things are just going great. Um, your, your family's healthy. Your, your kids are getting along. Work is good. You come home tired but, but satisfied. You know, it's, it's, it's really in those times, I think, when we struggle the most to do what we learned last week when we looked at, at Joshua and in his um, confrontation with, with a likely appearance of Jesus in, in Old Testament times before they faced Jericho. God wanted him in a position of dependence and worship. And how often when times are just going really, really, really good for us, are we really still dependent on God and worshiping. And, and so, just a, a reminder for that. Now, this message this morning, I've given it 50 times in my head this week, and every time it was different. So, if you talk to somebody from early service later, and you say, hey, did you think about this point? And they're like, well, he didn't say that during first service. It's, I don't, you know, 
So what, what I want to do here this morning as we think about major struggles, people that, that, are, that have relational anxiety, you know, your relationships in your life, they're not going real well. It, it's just not good. There's a lot of pain. Um, physical struggles, the, maybe the death of a loved one or sickness or chronic pain or some sort of disability that, that, that detracts from a quality of life or maybe there's unknown things. You, you know that there's something wrong in your body and maybe there are actual physical manifestations of that, but nobody, nobody can tell you what it is or what's causing it. You've gone to all of the best doctors and nobody has any idea that, that is a struggle. There, there are effects of poor decisions, uh, either by yourself or someone close to you, it's, and it's causing pain in your life. Maybe, maybe you've strayed away from God. Maybe you felt left behind, and, and so you're like, well, if you're going to leave me behind, then forget you, and you've shaken your fist at God, and you wonder why. So many of those big struggles are represented here this morning in this room. In this room. Now last week we looked at obstacles and how we need to depend on God as we face them. This morning, we're going to take a look at the book of Ruth. Now, by a show of hands, how many people read... No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, I gave you an assignment last week to read the book of Ruth, and, and I hope that you did. Um, I, have, don't, I couldn't tell you how many times this week that I've read it, but if you would turn to the book of Ruth, please. It's only four chapters. It's right after Judges. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. It's page 258 in the Bibles under the seats if you want to grab one of those. If you didn't bring a Bible, none of Ruth will be up on the screen. Some great lessons for us in the book of Ruth this morning. Ruth, and I'm just going to try and catch everyone up. For those who didn't read the book this week, we're just going to kind of run through the first three chapters kind of really quickly here. Um, in, in chapter 1, verse 1, it starts out, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and they lived there. We don't know why they moved to Moab. Um, it does mention that there was a famine in the land and maybe the grass looked greener on the other side of the Dead Sea. And so Elimelech picked up his family and they went the 50 miles up and over the top from Bethlehem to, to Moab, which is on the east side of the Dead Sea, opposite of Bethlehem and Judea. And something else that we need to recognize about the nation of Moab is its history, its bloodline. The Moabites are a people who are descendants of Lot. And you can find this in, in the book of Genesis. I don't remember which chapter it is, but Lot... And his daughters, after Sodom and Gomorrah happened, you know, they flee to Moab, what is now Moab. And, and they're holing up in a cave there, and time passes, and Lot's daughters decide that they're not going to get married, and they're not going to have any kids, so they take things into their own hands. They, they get their father drunk, and on two separate nights, they each sleep with their dad and get pregnant. Okay? The descendants of Lot 
That's Moabite. Okay, that's who the Moabite people are. And, and from that moment on, they were a constant thorn in the side of Israel. They, they, they didn't have good bloodline. Okay? When, anytime you read in the book of Ruth, Moabitess, which is what Ruth is, remember, remember her, her ancestry. It's important as, as we go through this. Okay, now, who knows why they moved there, but they did. And now Elimelech, uh, verse 3, Naomi's husband died, and she was left with her two sons. Okay, not all is lost for her as a woman. Thus far, she still has two sons. These two sons get married to Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons, and her husband. So now we have three women in this household. A mother-in-law and two daughters-in-law. That's it. No husband, no man. And in this culture, in this time, women were considered property of sorts. Okay? And here you have these women with no husband, no one to provide for them, no one to meet their needs. And so life is pretty desperate for them right now. It's miserable. And Naomi decides, says in verse 6, when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of His people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. So they're going, she's going to go back to Bethlehem because the Lord has provided for the people in the midst of the famine, which I'm kind of thinking maybe Elimelech should have had the faith to stay there in the first place and trust the Lord to provide for them. But he didn't. Okay, So they are where they are by the decisions that were made. So Naomi says to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So Naomi says, Orpah and Ruth, I want you guys to go back to your parents and live your lives. You, you have no reason to come with me. And in fact... Um, she ends up convincing Orpah that that's what she should do. And so verse 14, it says they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Ruth is loyal to her mother-in-law. She is in this for the long haul. I am with you and I am not leaving you, she says. In fact, where you die, I will die, she says. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. Now, where does that word Bethlehem ring in your ears? What do you think of when you hear the, the, the name of the town, Bethlehem? Jesus' birthplace, okay? File that away back there for a little while as well. The, the, here's, here's one of the things I want us to see this morning, is that, that all of these details and all of these things that are happening are just life. It's life. 
Elimelech dies. His sons die. That happens in life. Seeming pretty common circumstances to this family. And, and so Naomi does what she only knows to do, and that's go back home. Go back to where she has relatives. And, and what we're going to find out, where there is actual land still in the name of Elimelech. Okay? But, but they don't real, we're looking at this story going, and, and you're going to find at the end of, of this, this message that, wow, this is amazing. God did this with, with Naomi and Ruth. They're just living life, just like you and I are living life. And what we need to understand is just like God is using Ruth and Naomi and others in this story in the common everyday aspects of life for an extraordinary thing that's going to happen in the future. I believe it's the same for you and for me. We kind of think that we're just living this extra, this, this ordinary life. But, but you may have a conversation with someone. You may witness to someone. You may do something for someone. You may fill somebody's gas tank up with gas sometime or, or whatever it might be. And, and that moment in time could change the trajectory of somebody's life. In fact, in generations' life, in, in entire people groups, to the end of time. Okay, let, let's, get back, let's get back to the story. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women explained, exclaimed, can this be Naomi? So they recognized Naomi. They know her. They're, many of them are related to her. And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. She says, instead, call me Mara. Now, if you're looking in your Bible at that, and there's a little tiny letter next to the name, don't call me Naomi, you go down to the bottom of the page and you see that little footnote B of verse 20 says, Naomi means pleasant. Naomi's like, don't call me pleasant because that's not what I am. In fact, she says, call me Mara, which is the next footnote, and it says Mara means bitter. This hasn't been a good experience for Naomi. In fact, it couldn't be any worse. She has no husband. She has no sons, no family to speak of other than this daughter-in-law who now is with her in Bethlehem as a Moabitess. Don't tell me that people who recognize who she is don't think things about her past and her upbringing. Oh, I keep flipping too many pages. So it goes on. She's very bitter. In fact, she blames God for this. She says, The Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, and, and the writer of the book of Ruth is not afraid to call her a Moabitess over and over and over and over. Her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So here they are in Bethlehem now, alone, no man in their life, no way to provide for themselves. So in chapter 2, verse 1, we get this little insight into something. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. Okay, so there's this relative and his name is Boaz. Okay, set that on a shelf. Go to the next verse. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, 
Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. This is something that they were allowed to do. According to Leverite law and other uh, Old Testament laws, in providing for the poor, you you were to allow them to come to your field and pick up stuff that had fallen on the ground. And so that's that's what Ruth does. And Naomi's like, okay, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. Now look at these next four words. As it turns out. Does anybody's translation say anything different there? Huh? Now behold. Okay. What else? Anything else? I think somebody early service had one that said, it just so happened. Think about those words. Okay, that is a coincidence, right? It just so happens that the field that Ruth went to unknowingly, she doesn't know what field she's going to, she went to this field. Okay? Whose field does it happen to be? It's Boaz's field. Okay, she gets there, um, she starts doing her thing. And, uh, and then it says, verse 4, Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, and he greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, and the Lord bless you, they called back. Great, great um, master-servant relationship. Great employer-employee relationship going on here. And, just, uh, and then it says, Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? I've never seen this woman before. He was intrigued. He must have possibly been attracted to her. She may, maybe she was beautiful. He says, whose young woman is that? And the foreman explains to her that she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather. And they said, sure. So Boaz says to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And wherever you, whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me? A foreigner, and Boaz replies, "I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you don't do not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge." And then she she continues on, "May I may I continue to find favor?" And he says, "Stay here. You'll be you'll be safe in my fields." And then he actually invites her over to his table, and he gives her some bread. And then she goes back to her mother-in-law. She gleans all day through the evening. She threshed the barley that she had gathered, and uh, it amounted to an ephah. She carried it. And then, if you look at the footnote at the bottom, an ephah is about three fifths of a bushel, or twenty-two liters. That actually doesn't help me either. I don't know how big three-fifths of a bushel is, but um, she worked very hard that day, didn't she? Remember, she's picking up heads that have broken off and fallen on the ground. You know, not big bunches, single heads. She's worked very hard. So she gets home, and her mother-in-law asked her, verse 19, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you because she brought all of this stuff home. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him. 
Naomi says to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added that that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now, if there was ever any hope in the mind of Naomi and now probably Ruth, it is entering right now. They have this kinsman redeemer. Well, what exactly is a kinsman redeemer? Well, let me tell you, and and let's kind of catch up in our notes here. Point number one in your notes is Ruth and Naomi's sweet redemption. And I want to call it sweet redemption because it is just so sweet. When you think about what Naomi and Ruth have been through and their attitudes, um, Ruth's past, her her bloodline, and and where she came from, and, and Naomi's attitude... What's going to happen to them in the next few pages of the book of Ruth is nothing but sweet and amazingly gracious and merciful. Okay, so, so first we have under Ruth and Naomi's sweet redemption is Ruth and Naomi's relative. Okay, and that's Boaz. And actually, Boaz says in, in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 20, that there's actually a closer relative. Um, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing us. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. But we're going to see later that, uh, that there is actually one closer than Boaz. Now, what is a kinsman redeemer? A, kins- a kinsman redeemer is a male relative who, according to various laws found in the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, had the privilege or responsibility to act for a relative who was in trouble, danger, or in need of vindication on their behalf. Someone who was to go and rescue them, in essence, to save them. That's, that's what Naomi and Ruth need. They need rescued. And, and they need their kinsman redeemer to come through for them. Now, kinsman redeemer, that actual phrase translated into English is only used seven times in the New International Version, and, and that's all in the book of Ruth. Okay, It's also translated as avenger of blood 12 times in, in other places. Okay, Now, the, the Hebrew word that's translated kinsman redeemer or avenger of blood is, is ga'al. I'm going to say go'el because it's a lot easier to say go'el than ga'al. Okay? Go'el. Now, Goel, that Hebrew word, that Hebrew phrase, is used over a hundred times in the Old Testament. You, you, we will also see it in the form of, of, it'll be translated as Redeemer. It will be translated as Near Relative. And it designates that male relative who delivers or rescues, or redeems property, or redeems people. Um, or avenges the murder of a relative as a guiltless executioner. That's found in Numbers chapter 35. Uh, receives restitution for wrong done to a relative who has since been dead. That's Numbers chapter 5. It's all according to the Leverite law. This kinsman redeemer idea. God set this up this way. God said this is what you are to do. And so Boaz knows that he is to be their kinsman redeemer. You know, we could say that God is Israel's kinsman redeemer. The one who will defend and vindicate them. The, uh, 
the idea that God is Israel's creator and father, Exodus chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 20, 32, that, that God was their deliverer, as we saw with the Exodus. Uh, God is the owner of the land that they're in, and He gave them this land, the promised land. God is the one who hears innocent blood crying out for vengeance in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 20, 21, and He is the King who has made His covenant with His people. God, in essence, is the kinsman redeemer of the nation of Israel. And, and in the Psalms, God often redeems in the sense of rescuing from danger. In Job chapter 19, verse 25, God is referred to as redeemer, as friend and kinsman of Job through faith, um, will ultimately defend and vindicate him, which we know in the end. But in the middle of that, in the process that Job is going through this, He's not thinking that way. He's not thinking greater plan here. He's thinking only of himself and his situation. And isn't that how we get? Adam and Jenny actually at first service, they didn't second service, they talked about how those missionary kids in Germany silo. He, he termed it silo. You know, they get, they get in this, this small place and they can't see anything else but just themselves. And, and, and it's like it, it, they're, they're like a foreigner in a, in a foreign land, which is what they are. And, and that's, that's what happens to us. And we need rescued. So Ruth and Naomi's relative is going to provide their sweet redemption. And they were redeemed from their great need. We see Boaz in Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. He's... He goes to the town gate and he sits there and he waits for this nearer relative to come by. And he says, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and he sat down and Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the, the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my church, of my people, I mean. <coughs> Ooh, sorry. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you and I am next in line. And the guy says, I will redeem it, he said. Now, we didn't go through chapter 3, but in chapter 3... Ruth goes to, to Boaz at night and she lays at his feet when he is sleeping on the threshing floor, which, which was another part of, of their law and how they did this. She was essentially laying herself at, at, at Boaz's feet saying, Redeem us. Be my Redeemer. I surrender myself to you. We surrender ourselves to you. And Boaz responds to that and that's what he's doing right here. So in their great need, redemption is approaching. The family's name will be preserved and Ruth and Naomi will be provided for. But as we read further, there seems to be a catch. Then, verse 5, Boaz says, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. So if he redeems this and he marries Ruth and then Ruth has a son, that son is just as, uh, will, will inherit just as much as his other children. And he's not willing to sacrifice that. He's not willing to give 
Ruth and Naomi the inheritance that they might receive. Now, I want you to think about that. Not only an inheritance, but an inheritance that they don't really, that they didn't really earn. Um, Full, full credit and a part of the estate. Now, think about what Jesus says when Jesus says that when we surrender our lives to him, that we become children of God. He says we are adopted into his family with full rights of a naturally born child. We are grafted in. Oh, what sweet redemption that is. What, what, a, what a blessing and what a gift. So only, it turns out, only Boaz could satisfy the terms, and that's exactly what he does. He announces to the elders, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth the Moabitess. In Bethlehem. Is now married to a Jew. Think about that. Okay? In order to maintain the name of the dead with the property so that this name will not disappear from among his family, or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. So the requirements of the kinsman redeemer were satisfied, and it was witnessed by many. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, we're witnesses. The guy hands over his sandal, which is a part of the tradition as well. And the women say to Rachel, uh, the women say, or the elders, and all those at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Remember, these are everyday occurring events, right? Not necessarily incredibly extraordinary. There's the law about this. This is what happens in life. Then we go on in verse 13, and Ruth was made Boaz's bride, and not only that, but she conceives, verse 13, she gives birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. Now here's where it gets crazy, right? They named him Obed. He was the father of who? Jesse. Who was the father of who? David. Not your normal, everyday, average, run-of-the-mill David like me. King David. And when we follow that bloodline further, who is at the end? Jesus Christ. So you tell me God can't redeem something or someone and use them in a way that we couldn't even imagine. I, I wonder if Ruth had any clue or idea that her great, 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 however far down, grandson was going to be the Lamb of God. She didn't, but she was a part of it. 
part of it was pretty rocky. But it was also pretty amazing. So Ruth became Boaz's bride. Now, here's the thing. Point number two in your notes is our sweet redemption. And I really don't need to say a whole lot because the story of Ruth speaks for most of it. But our sweet redemption, Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. Now you say, Pastor Dave, I'm not related to him. He's not my brother or my uncle or my relative. Well, Jesus is referred to as your brother in the biblical record. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Those who are made holy are of the same family, it says. Hebrews 2, 16 through 18. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For the reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, Jesus is referred to our brother and we have been redeemed from our great need. We have great need. You have great need as you sit here this morning. Broken bodies, broken relationships, broken finances, broken spirituality, broken jobs. There's a lot of brokenness in this life. And again, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But I didn't read the, the two phrases that sandwich that verse. They're right here. I have told you these things, Jesus says, that in me you may have peace and take heart. I have overcome the world. And He continues to overcome the world today. And He can in your life and in the life, lives of the people that you were around each day. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 say, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has gone through the heavens, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Just like Ruth was willing to go lay at the feet of Boaz, you and I, we can have the confidence to lay down at the feet of Jesus. Say, Jesus, would you redeem me? And only Jesus can satisfy those terms. He is the only one. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says in John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Paul says it too, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship. Ruth was God's workmanship. Boaz was God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God is preparing work for you and for me to do. Let's just trust Him as we, as we go through our everyday lives and know that, that He is our kinsman redeemer and He is going to do amazing things with us just like He did with Ruth. And then finally, in Christ Jesus, we have been made a bride. 
Um, I'm not going to read it. Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33. We've talked about it recently. Paul's talking about marriage and the church. Which is it? It's both. And the fact that as the church, we are the bride of Christ. He has redeemed us. I want to close with two short illustrations. A gathering of friends that at an English estate nearly turned to tragedy when one of the children strayed into deep water. The gardener heard the cries for help, plunged in and rescued the drowning child. That youngster's name was Winston Churchill. His grateful parents asked the gardener what they could do to reward him. He hesitated and then he said this, I wish my son could go to college someday and become a doctor. We'll see to it, Winston Churchill's parents said. Years later, while Sir Winston was Prime Minister of England, he was stricken with pneumonia. The country's best physician was summoned. His name was Dr. Alexander Fleming, the man who discovered and developed penicillin. He was also the son of that gardener who had saved young Winston from drowning. Later, Churchill remarked, rarely has one man owed his life twice to the same person. Now, think about that as you reflect on this next one. He built the sail and had it all fixed up. He tarred it, he painted it. He took it to the lake and he pushed it in, hoping it would sail. This young man, sure enough, a wisp of breeze filled the sail, little sail and it billowed and that little sailboat that he built went rippling along the waves. But suddenly, before the boy realized it, the boat was out of his reach, even though he waded in fast and tried to grab it. As he watched it float away, he hoped maybe the breeze would shift and bring it back to him, but it didn't. Instead, he watched it go further and further until it was gone. When he went home crying, his mother asked, what's wrong? Didn't it work? And he said, it worked too well. Sometime later, the little boy was downtown and walked past a second-hand store. There in the window, he saw his boat. It was unmistakably his. So he went in and he said to the proprietor, that's my boat. And he walked over to pick it up and to leave with it. And the owner of the shop said, wait a minute, Sonny, that's my boat. I bought it from someone. The boy said, no, it's my boat. I made it. See, and he showed him the marks and scratches that his little hammer had, had put on it. And the man said, I'm sorry, Sonny, if you want it, you have to buy it. The poor little guy didn't have any money, but he worked hard and he saved his pennies. And finally, one day, he had enough money and he went in and he bought the little boat. And as he left the store holding the boat close to him, he was heard saying, you're my boat. You're twice my boat. First, you're my boat because I made you. And second, you're my boat because I bought you. If you ever think you aren't worth much, and if you ever think you're just cheap, let's remember this. Jesus Christ made you and Jesus Christ bought you. You were twice bought. Let's remember that. Let's, let's live our lives that way, approaching the throne of grace with confidence. And let's tell our friends you know, because we're not the only ones in this county in southeastern Wyoming who have big obstacles in our lives. Let's encourage others with the message of Ruth. Let's pray as we close this morning. Lord, thank you 
Father, I thank you for your amazing grace. And thank you, Lord, that even when the ocean's deep, we can have faith and trust you to carry us. Because you continue to work. And Lord, if there are those in our uh, congregation this morning in this room or who are listening online who, who are bitter and angry as Naomi was, Lord, help them to see that you are still working. That you are working to redeem. Father, help us to see that. And Lord, I pray that we would each experience that sweet redemption that's given freely. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for buying us. In Jesus' name.